raise a glass. Raise a glass for 200 years of the Bible Society. Uh, Let's celebrate the Bible Society's commitment to uh, reaching out with the gospel message about Jesus in Australia for 200 years. There are very few organisations in Australia that have a 200-year history. The Bible Society started one month before Australia's oldest bank, Australia's first bank, uh, the Bank of New South Wales, now known as Westpac. For 200 years, the Bible Society has been spreading the seed of God's Word. Now, this 200th celebration of the Bible Society, the celebration of the 200th anniversary of the Bible Society has literally coincided with uh, raising a glass. Uh, Cooper's Beer Company uh, announced a couple of weeks ago that they were going to release uh, commemorative beer cans that would have Bible verses printed on them. Now, of course, it was light beer, and uh, many of the verses mentioned light in them. But perhaps you saw this week or in the week before that the Bible Society at the same time released the first of what was going to be a series of videos called Keeping It Light, uh, where some, a couple of politicians were going to uh, sit around and discuss big issues around a beer and the Bible, Keeping It Light. But did you see the storm in a beer glass that erupted around that this week? If you're on social media, if you're following in the newspapers, I think it made the TV news, I rarely see it. A storm erupted around these campaigns and these celebrations. Uh, Now, the Bible Society will be criticised for their association with beer and this media campaign gone bad. You might have your own opinions about that. But through the midst of all this... What we should notice most is the hardness of the soil into which the seed of God's Word is being sown at the moment. What we should notice most is the hardness of the soil into which God's Word is being sown. The culture round about us Uh, is very, very hard to the Gospel about Jesus. There's great opposition. And one of the sad realisations of this week is that reasonable discussion of the Bible in the public square is less and less tolerated. The culture round about us uh, is very hard to the Gospel message about Jesus. My big question this week, uh, my big question has been, will God's Word actually penetrate our hardened culture anymore? Are we just tossing seed onto the pavement? Our special concern and effort and energy here at New Life across Terms 1 and Term 2 this year to be reaching out, are we wasting our time? Will the Gospel actually take root and grow? Is it really worth giving my life to leading a gospel church like this one if we'll make no impact on the world round about us? Well, you and I need the encouragement of Acts 
You and I need the encouragement of this true historical account of what God has done and is doing in his world. A world that is a hardened soil. Now before we get to Acts 6, I want to take us to two other places in Acts to see God's word spread when it looks unlikely. If you turn with me please to Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, there's a threat to the word of God reaching out. Uh, The apostle Paul, the missionary Paul, the church planter Paul, he is handing over his church planting work to the next generation. And amongst this next generation, uh, a group known as the Sons of Sceva, rather than following in Paul's gospel agenda, seek their own superstitious agenda. Uh, And they try to do things with evil spirits by invoking the name Jesus. They invoke the name Jesus like it's some kind of magic word that they can use to manipulate evil spirits. It's kind of a a first century version of a Vada Kedavra. But their invoking of the name of Jesus in a superstitious kind of way, has disastrous consequences. You can see there in verse 15, verse 16, Acts chapter 19, these disastrous consequences. The evil spirit actually jumps on them, beats them up, beats them up so badly that they go running away naked and bleeding. Now this has such an impact on the other believers, some of who were dabbling in sorcery, that they give up their sorcery, they give up their superstition, they burn their spell books. And the result? Well, superstitious fakery does not advance, but rather the word of God spreads. Verse 20. Verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. If we go back to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 12... There's a political ambition that uh, threatens the word of God reaching out. Acts chapter 12, King Herod uh, stands against the church. He stands opposed to it. Verse 1, he arrests some of the believers. Verse 2, he kills James. Verse 4, he puts Peter in prison. While King Herod stands against the church for his own political ambition... God stands against Herod. Verse 7, Peter is rescued from prison. And then in verse 21, we read this. Follow along, please. Acts chapter 12, verse 21. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, Because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. The result? Political ambition of human leaders does not advance, rather, the word of God spreads, verse 24. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. So when we come to Acts chapter 6, we should expect 
that the challenge facing the apostles will not stop the spread of the gospel message about Jesus. Now, this challenge that comes to the spread of the church doesn't come from superstition, doesn't come from a political leader or a king, but comes from within the church itself. By the time we get in history to what Acts chapter 6 is is recounting for us, the church in Jerusalem has grown to more than 5,000 disciples. Uh, In Acts, disciples and believers, those two words are are often interchanged. And we should be thinking here uh, that that in Acts um, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, the number of disciples is the number of believers, which would be well over 5,000 people by now. And they have a problem, verse 1. Some of the Grecian or Hellenistic Jews, who are they? Well, Grecian or Hellenistic Jews, they are Greek-speaking Jews who have lived outside of Jerusalem. At some stage, they've become refugees from Israel. And they have learnt Greek culture uh, and they've learnt the Greek language. Now they're back in Jerusalem and they are Grecian Jews or Hellenistic Jews. They complain against the Hebraic Jews. Hebraic Jews are Hebrew-speaking Jews, those who have born and bred in Jerusalem and have always spoken uh, Hebrew. These two groups, one has a complaint against the other because the widows of the one are missing out on their share of the food. The widows are some of those who are vulnerable amongst them, who rely on the community of believers to provide for them. Now, Luke doesn't tell us at this point whether this was an ethnic or a cultural disunity, but you can see how it pretty quickly could become one. The bottom line problem was that some of the most needy in the church are being overlooked. That deep unity and generous sharing that we saw amongst the believers at the end of chapter 4, verses 32 to 35, that deep unity and that generous sharing so that nobody is in need, well, that environment is threatened. What impact do you think this could have on the spread of the gospel? I'm sure we each know how much conflict and disunity in a church saps our energy away from mission and evangelism. Well, verses 2 to 4, we have the solution. It's open and transparent. All the believers are called together in verse 2. It's recognised by the leadership that the widows must be provided for. And while providing for the widows, waiting on tables is good, serving one another is good, this must not keep the apostles from their ministry of prayer and the word, verse 4. So what do they do? Well, I see that seven suitable men are chosen to oversee the fair distribution of food. Not just any men, verse 3. It's those who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. Those who are mature. Those who are respected as leaders. And among them, verse 5, we can see there in the names of Stephen. We'll come across Stephen uh, uh, and spend some more time reading about Stephen next week. Somebody who gives one of the most amazing speeches recorded in the book of Acts, just before he's killed for being a Christian, chapter 7. Also listed amongst them is Philip, 
who, who, who was a missionary evangelist that we come across in chapter 8. Seven men who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom are appointed. And the result, verse 7, while there was every chance that grumbling and disunity might advance, no, rather, the word spreads. See there in verse 7? So the word of God spread. The number of disciples, the number of believers in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The seed of the gospel message about Jesus even took root in the Sanhedrin. The very group of priests who in chapter 5, verse 40 in particular, the very group of priests who flogged the apostles and ordered them to not speak in the name of Jesus... The seed of the gospel message about Jesus has now taken root in their very midst. God ensures that the gospel will reach out to the ends of the earth. Because it's monumental news. It can't be contained. It can't be hidden. It can't be silenced. It can't be suppressed. The gospel message is monumental news about Jesus, God himself, who came among us to die on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. Without the forgiveness of sins from Jesus, we are left abandoned and broken and guilty in the world before God, under his judgment and his wrath, with no hope or no life in the world. But Jesus has come into the world from God himself, as God himself, to bring forgiveness from our sin. To then not just stay dead, but to rise to new life and to call all those who put their trust in him into the new heaven and the new earth. Jesus ascends into heaven as a universal and eternal king and promises to return to judge and to lead us into his wonderful new creation. It is big news. It is big news that breaks into a broken world. News that spreads through the brokenness of individual lives so that we might have true life and hope and joy. It's such life-changing news that its spread cannot be stopped, cannot be silenced, cannot be suppressed, cannot be beaten down, cannot be hidden. Martin Luther, a German monk who sparked and led uh, the 16th century uh, Reformation in Germany, uh, he said this about his influence. I simply taught, preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip and my Amstorf, there are a couple of his mates, the word so greatly, greatly weakened the papacy, the rule of the Pope, that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. Amidst the Cooper's controversy this week, as people were shouting at each other, uh, Christian leaders were scrambling. Uh, I saw other Christian leaders like me. I felt this being... 
uh, like the coach of the footy team that has been ambushed in the first half of the grand final. (laughs) What's going on here? How are we going to come back from this? What are we going to say? What's going to happen? Uh, One of my Facebook friends posted this, uh, also a pastor. Half-time talk for Christians in my neighbourhood. The power of God is in the gospel. Let the word do the work. It's a good reminder for us. It's an acts reminder. Let the word do the work. There's a proverbial saying, the main thing is that the main thing remains the main thing. The main thing is that the main thing remains the main thing. A few years ago, uh, Mike Willisey, who's a TV uh, presenter, he was interviewed uh, on a religious program about his Catholic faith and his views on the church. He was asked this question, what, uh, Mike, what advice would you give to the Christian church? Uh, Willisey replied, I can't tell the church how to run itself, but I can give this advice. Find out what you are meant to be doing and do that well. The main thing is that the main thing remains the main thing. Now, the main thing has got to be the Word of God. The gospel message about Jesus contained for us in the Bible. We'll be people who are concerned for widows. We'll be people who reach out to the homeless. We'll be people who love and welcome refugees. We will ensure that the vulnerable and the needy are cared for and provided for. We'll provide special care and hospitals for those with severe disability. We'll support Jericho Road. We will give to Jericho Road. We'll pray for Jericho Road. We'll have links to Compassion Child Sponsorship Projects in Ghana. We'll get involved with community service because because of the primacy of prayer and the ministry of the Word. It's necessary and good to wait on tables, but it must not keep us from prayer and the sowing of God's Word deep into our lives and into our church. Think for a moment about what a church looks like, perhaps you know a church like this, that is truly active, vibrant, fruitful. It's like this because it's deep in God's Word. It'll be a church that reads and listens with prayerful and expectant engagement. When was the last time you engaged with the Bible here at church or in a small group in a way that changed you? When was the last time that you were stopped in your tracks? When you were picked up, turned around, humbled, encouraged, strengthened, overwhelmed, spurred on? Today was the first time that Brock is leading one of our church services here. And Brock and I spent some time together this week talking about uh, how to lead church, um, how to do it in a way that, that points to God's Word and the Gospel, how that, to uh, lead people well. 
And one stage I said, said to Brock, I said, leading church is a bit like being the announcer uh, at the stadium on grand final day. And you hear the announcer, the, the MC, they explode in their welcome because they are expectant that something big is going to happen on grand final day or Super Bowl for our American friends. How much more when we're gathering for church? At which the centrepiece is God speaking to us in His Word. Brock worked hard this morning to be like that announcer, not bigger and larger than life, but to set us up to be expectant, to hear God speak, to stop us in our tracks, to pick us up, to turn us around, to encourage us, to challenge us, to strengthen us, to spur us on. We can be mistaken into thinking that it's when we feel a special challenge or when we're specially moved that then we'll engage with what God is saying to us. You see, the problem though with this kind of thinking is that then we're expectant of a movement or a feeling that requires God to act in a way that is apart from His Word. God has given us His Word in the Bible, living an active sword and He promises that every time we open it, it'll penetrate our spirit and our soul. Let's be this expectant kind of church and expectant kind of Bible readers. When you think of another Christian who you know who is truly joyful and fruitful and content, they're like this because God's Word is prayerfully sown deep in their life. There's no shortcut. There's no quick fix, just prayerful, deep sowing, day by day, week by week, year by year, decade by decade. In Acts, we see that it's as the Word takes this deep root in believers that as the Christian community is deeply affected by the Gospel message, that then the Word of God overflows and spreads. What we see in Acts is that as Christians and Christian community is deeply affected by God's Word, that the Gospel message overflows and spreads out. Now perhaps sadly, the reason the culture round about us is so hardened to the gospel message, is a sobering exposure of how shallowly it has penetrated our lives. Me included. Has the Keeping It Light Bible Society Cooper's video this week exposed that the reason that the community round about us is so hard to the gospel is because it actually hasn't penetrated very deep into our own lives or our Christian community yet. How might we be people who see God's word prayerfully sown deep in us? Benjamin Franklin, who was a US president, he was very concerned for virtue 
and developing good characteristics in his own life. He recorded in his autobiography that he sought to grow himself in 13 different virtues. And he made up a plan and a little table and a chart that he would keep in his diary with these list of 13 virtues and the days of the week. And every time he didn't achieve one of those virtues during the day, he'd put a little black spot there so that he might give diligent attention to it. In our staff team this week, we came up with a little similar uh, plan for ourselves, 14 verses in 14 days, 14 verses in 14 days. Here's what I want to encourage you to do, I'm going to try and do it as well. Find in the Bible promises and characteristics that you'd like to know and have take deep root in your life. 14 verses. Find 14 verses that capture promises of God that need to take root in our life. And some verses that look at characteristics that you know you need to see grow in your life. And then pick 14 verses and across 14 days, two weeks, read, meditate on, reflect on and pray through one of those verses each day, around the 14 days. And then go around again and again and again. And in 12 months' time, you'll have given, you'll given attention to each one of those 26 times. If at the end of that year, you've got those sown deep in your life, go for another 14. If not, go around a second year. That's how God's Word will be prayerfully sown deep in our life that we might become truly joyful, fruitful, content Christians through whom the Word of God is sown so deeply that it overflows and spreads out into the rest of the world. The Gospel message about Jesus will spread to the ends of the earth. And before our application is for us to reach out beyond the fringe... It's for the gospel message to be built up in our own lives. So that as the word spreads in our lives, it'll overflow and spread to the ends of the earth.